This is Our American Stories. Americans have been celebrating George Washington's birthday on February 22nd since 1885. But in 1971, President's Day was enacted, which celebrates the births of Washington and Lincoln every third Monday in February. We plan on helping that situation a bit by giving President Washington, the father of our country, not his own day, but his own hour. The poet Robert Frost once remarked that George Washington was one of the few in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Washington could have become King of America if he wanted to. Instead, America's first general became the United States' first two-term civilian president, something a world familiar only with hereditary monarchs had never seen. Napoleon, as he lay dying on the island of St. Helena, condemned for having seized the power of an emperor, complained that his critics wanted me to be another Washington. Underneath the man who has become namesake to thousands of small towns, high schools, the nation's capital, and the 42nd state, whose image is reproduced endlessly on coins, currency, and stamps, and a huge bust carved into a South Dakota mountain, we find a man seeking to belong, longing for acceptance and respect. Parson Mason Weems, an Episcopal clergyman and sometime bookseller, is the source of some of those pious stories about George Washington, like chopping down his father's cherry tree. The real George Washington is born in a modest farmhouse in Northern Virginia on February 22, 1732. The first child of a middle-aged father and a second wife. In the mid-18th century, Virginia is a province of the British Empire. Its sparse population of mostly British descent see themselves as Englishmen subjects of the king. But the British see Virginians as crude colonists, second class in every way. Washington's father Augustine dies when he is 11. George inherits a farmhouse left in trust to his mother Mary. But the bulk of Augustine Washington's estate, including the sizable plantation at Mount Vernon, goes to his older half-brother Lawrence. Unlike Lawrence, who's educated in England, George's formal education ends when he is 14. Lawrence convinces Mary Washington to send George to him so that he can teach the boy the ways of society. I wish you were my brother, not my half-brother. I feel all of you is my brother. <laughs> so I am, George. Forever. As George's surrogate father, Lawrence offers guidance and contact with the wealthiest and most prominent family in Virginia, the Fairfax family which he has married into. The rough young man learns his social graces by quietly watching and imitating those in Lawrence's charmed circle. Acutely aware of his own lack of sophistication, fearful of social missteps, Washington develops lifelong habits of social reserve. He studies books on manners. He reads English magazines and translations of Roman classics so that he would have something to say at dinner parties. But to become one of the elite, George needs to make money. By 17, he is working as a frontier surveyor in the Appalachian Mountains. At 18, he buys his first piece of land. Washington, like all Virginians, needed land. 
Land was the most valuable commodity uh, in an in agrarian society. Uh, they needed land to replenish their tobacco fields, which wore out in four to eight years. They needed land for speculative purposes, for a rainy day. It was the one form of inheritance they could pass on that would be of great value to their offspring. The land west of the Appalachian Mountains bears a wilderness of inconceivable magnitude and unimaginable richness. I never knew it was so big, so rich, so green and untouched. Wherever we go, I feel that we're the first to ever walk this land. Indians are out here somewhere. Few Americans have seen it, but the British crown wants it. So does their arch rivals, the French, and both have to reckon with the Indians who live there. Washington has surveyed it, and in 1754, he comes to fight for it. After all, as a soldier of the British crown, he can rise higher in society than any mere surveyor. He is now 22, six feet three inches tall, a major in the Virginia Regiment, and after years in the backwoods, as tough as the terrain. A smoldering Cold War between England and France, fueled by conflicting land claims on two continents, hits a flashpoint in the Ohio Valley. In Europe, this conflict will be called the Seven Years' War. In North America, it is known as the French and Indian War. Eventually, the French will be driven from America, but at such a cost that the British will raise taxes in America to pay for the fighting. This leads to the American Revolution, in which the French aids America. The French will pay for this with higher taxes, which leads to the French Revolution. Washington is called to the Virginia Governor's Palace in Williamsburg. Now I should like to consult with you upon a matter of great import. The King of France, not satisfied with the vast province of Canada, has decided to make open trespass on British soil. He has sent soldiers into our territory, thus flouting British sovereignty established by God and King. They build forts, trade with our Indians and otherwise encroach upon our sacred rights. I have received orders from His Gracious Majesty to send an emissary demanding that they depart. Sir. Before you recommend someone, sir, I think you should know that the French are a treacherous people. This emissary will be in considerable danger. Yes, sir, but... Which is why I need someone who can travel hundreds of miles through unknown mountains, has experience with the Indians, and is possessed of a hearty constitution. You were about to recommend someone, sir? Your description fits only me, sir. Washington is sent out on his first assignment. His job is to lead 139 men to the forks of the Ohio River and build a fort there before the French can. His only military preparation consists of fencing lessons and having read two books on the art of war. But the French beat Washington to his goal, and now his Indian scouts tell him that the French are sending a party to ambush him. Washington leads his men on a night march towards the French camp, where he finds 40 men sleeping. At dawn, he strikes. A few minutes later, 10 French, including a French ambassador, and four Englishmen are dead. The French court brands him an assassin. The French and Indian War has begun. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington.
is our American story, celebrating the life of George Washington. As always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Let's return to George Washington's story. Later at the Battle of Fort Duquesne, Washington demonstrates that what he lacks in strategic ability, he more than makes up for in sheer bravery, when he has two horses shot from under him. Three years later, again at Fort Duquesne, two groups of Virginia militiamen stumble upon one another in the wilderness and mistakenly open fire on each other. Washington rides between opposing lines, knocking away guns on both sides with his sword. 14 are killed, 26 are wounded, Washington isn't touched. At 24, he returns a hero to his fellow Virginians. But when he seeks a commission as a full British officer, not just a Virginia colonial officer, he is rudely rejected. Your arrogance defies me, sir. We are at war with France. And you, sir, were the man who fired the shot that started this war. He resigns from the militia in protest. Good day, sir. Denied advancement in the British Army, he realizes that if he is to make his mark in the world, he must do it as a civilian. What's so touching about his experience of the French and Indian War is that it was the making of him in a way that he did not expect. Instead of being the making of him as an element of the glittering gentleman's world of the British Virginia Empire, it was the making of his experience of human vicissitude and the forging of his character and I suspect the beginnings of those personal feelings which made it possible for him to be a rebel leader where once all he had wanted was to be an imperial guard. Then in 1752 after having found the town of Alexandria, Virginia, George's half-brother and father figure Lawrence dies of tuberculosis. George becomes the owner of Mount Vernon. He's got lots of land, but little money to work it with, and he is alone. For 10 years he has wooed a succession of young women, all of whom reject him, some because he isn't rich enough, and some because they are put off by his restrained personality. Then George is introduced to Martha Custis, a 27-year-old widow and mother of two, Martha is five foot tall with a pleasant appearance, is slightly plump, shy, and serious. Universally liked and easy to talk to. She is also one of the most wealthy, marriageable women in all of Virginia. Her husband, Daniel Custis, has left her 17,000 acres of tobacco, hundreds of slaves, and several farms. I feel warm and at peace here in your dear presence. Forgive me, I don't know why I've been talking so much upon such early acquaintance. I'm usually more reserved than ladies. I too feel safe and at peace in your company, sir. And that is all I need to know at this moment. The two only spend 20-some hours together before George proposes marriage. Here they come! Within the year, they are married having spent only 15 days in one another's company. In marrying Martha Custis, 
Washington finally enters the world of the Virginia elite. She was uh, extremely supportive of him. She complimented him in many ways. Uh, she was, um, she socialized more easily than Washington did, liked to talk uh, with friends and greet them, whereas Washington was, I think Washington was a little bit shy. Um, and he was, his size was intimidating. He used to frighten the children. But we're told that Mrs. Washington grabbed him by his lapels and pulled him right down to her face when she wanted to talk to him. Well, my future is to be a farmer and a husband. There'll be no British general telling me how to plow my field or love my wife. Credit extended by British tobacco agents enables Virginia planters to live opulently. But credit also puts them in debt and constant droughts keep devastating crop production. As tobacco prices fall, their debts mount. George and Martha face a dilemma. Washington faces economic collapse, but he's equally fearful of what others might think if he's unable to maintain his style of life. If I economize, Washington writes in a letter, such an alteration in the system of my living will create suspicions of a decay in my fortune, and such a thought the world must not harbor. Image is all important. Washington staffs his residence with 14 servants and seven slaves. But unlike many of his contemporaries who defend slavery, Washington believes that slavery debases both slave and slaveholder. Washington has the resources to pull himself completely out of debt if he sells all of his slaves. But he says, I refuse to participate in that practice of selling slaves. It's wrong. Jonathan Alton, Washington's longtime plantation hand, attempts to sell off the slaves. Washington responds immediately. I gave you no authority to sell any of our people. Colonel, you instructed me to cut costs because of our drought losses. I've told you before, Mr. Alton, I will not break up families. There will be no sale. By not selling slaves without your permission, we can go bankrupt. Virginia law, of course, does not recognize slave families or slave marriages, but Washington does. Washington treats them like family, which is why after they're released following his death, the former slaves come back and take care of Mount Vernon and his and Martha's grave. Of all the founding fathers, Washington is the only one to free his slaves. But Washington is broke. He sees his and his fellow planters' problems as one of dependence on their British agents, the men who sell Virginia's tobacco in Europe and who purchase finished goods on their behalf in London. He was persuaded that they palmed off the shoddiest goods on colonials. All of this simply intensified his sense of anti-colonial discrimination, this time within the context of the imperial commercial system. Although Washington believes he grows the best tobacco in Virginia, he decides to stop growing the labor-intensive, soil-depleting crop and grows grains instead. He is soon selling his produce in Alexandria and buys finished goods from local importers and American manufacturers instead of buying through London agents. Within a decade, he is out of debt and a firm believer in American economic independence. As the British Parliament levies one burdensome tax after another on the colonies, Washington begins to see advantages in American political independence as well. 
and when British troops sail into Boston in 1768, Washington sees them as nothing more than tax collectors in red coats. Soon, Washington joins Patrick Henry as one of the most influential members of the Virginia House of Burgesses. But along with his appointment, also comes a learning curve. The first time that Washington ran, he neglected the usual practice of uh, treating the uh, voters with, with uh, alcoholic beverages on election day, and he lost. The next time he was careful to arrange for some of his supporters to see that the, uh, the bar was open and plentifully supplied, and he won. As relations between Britain and the colonies deteriorate, Virginia sends Washington as one of its delegates to the First Continental Congress in Philadelphia. By the time the Second Continental Congress convenes one year later, fighting breaks out between the Massachusetts Minutemen and the British regulars. President recognizes Mr. Adams, Massachusetts. I believe, sirs, that the hour has come. How few of the human race have ever had an opportunity of choosing a system of government for themselves and their children. While I live, let me have a country. A free country. It is no exaggeration to say that between 1774 and 1777, Independence Hall in Philadelphia glows with more intellectual candle power than has ever burned in a single place before or since. Ben Franklin, John Adams, his cousin Sam, John Jay, the men of the Virginia delegation, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, Edmund Pendleton, and then there is George Washington. If he'd had the kind of raw ambition that he'd showed in the Seven Years' War, the leading revolutionaries of 1775 wouldn't have touched him. They wouldn't have thought of making him a commander of the Continental Army. They feared a man on horseback. They feared their own army. And the idea of having an ambitious person would have horrified them. And when we come back, more on the life of George Washington. is our American stories we continue with the life of George Washington we will be left defenseless gentlemen she didn't speak much in debates at the Continental Congress he did not have a strong voice he wasn't an orator but then neither were Franklin or Jefferson I don't think Washington was intimidated by the power of the other intellects there but he knew himself he knew he wasn't an original thinker what Washington could do was express himself with his presence, his uniform, and his habit of command. To symbolize the depth of his commitment to the cause of resistance, Washington arrives in Philadelphia wearing his splendid old blue and buff Virginia military uniform. He wore the uniform because he knew he looked good in it and because he wanted to be commander-in-chief. And he knew that if other people could see him in that uniform, 
they would see him as he saw himself in command. John Adams nominates 43-year-old Washington as Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, which will wage a war for national independence. What is required now is one able man to build and to lead this new uh, Continental Army. And who do you propose of the Massachusetts delegates should lead this force? I have but one gentleman in mind, known to all of us. Mr. President, I propose as Commander-in-Chief our most honorable and esteemed delegate, the good gentleman from Virginia, Colonel George Washington. He is elected unanimously. I am truly sensible of the high honor the Congress has done me, but I tell you now, I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. Washington sees his appointment as one ordained by God. Your Continental Army awaits you at Cambridge, sir. In his letters, he refers to the war as the cause, with cause always capitalized, recognizing God's providence in their resistance. John Adams prophetically writes that Washington could become one of the most important characters in the world. Washington accepts the assignment, knowing that if he fails, he would lose everything he struggled so hard to gain. He would lose Mount Vernon. Then Congress approves the Declaration of Independence, resolution asserting America's right to choose their own government, absolving all allegiance to the British crown. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political band which have connected them with another. It may have been Ben Franklin who said, if we don't hang together, we will most certainly hang separately. But it is Washington's neck that will feel the noose first. There is no turning back. When George Washington got to Cambridge to assume his new command of the Continental Army, he, all of his fears were probably reinforced. What he found, instead of an inspired band of revolutionaries, was a disorganized, dirty, undisciplined mob. I'd flog the lot of them. And he was supposed to command them and make them an army and expel the British from North America and secure independence for the American people. Yes, what is it? Sir, the British are landing on Long Island. The battle is upon us. New York, 1776. Washington is outnumbered two to one. He grew during the war as a military commander, but at the beginning, um, he showed a considerable degree of incompetency. For instance, at the Battle of Long Island, he left the end of his line open. The British were able to run around it, then nearly catch his whole army and destroy it. Washington loses New York, which begins a succession of losses up and down Manhattan Island. A skirmish at Harlem Heights, a defeat at White Plains, a disaster for Washington at Fort Washington, another disaster at Fort Lee. By November, his army has almost evaporated. Men have left or deserted to bring in harvests. Thousands have been captured or killed. Many have fallen ill, and the British are chasing his remnant of 5,000 across the New Jersey plain. By the end of 1776, the Continental Army was melting away. Uh, the jig seemed just about up. Washington 
was in despair. He started to talk about having to go hide out in the West. To his brother, Washington writes, I think the game is pretty near up. By December of 1776, the Continental cause was in very serious trouble. Washington's uh, soldiers were about to go home. Their enlistments were expiring. Many colonists were beginning to take up the British offer of pardon. They were going over to the enemy. The revolution was unraveling. And then, suddenly, at the very end of the year, in, in a bold and daring move, uh, Washington, with his small remaining army, swooped down on Trenton, New Jersey. There are few places in America where history pivots around the character of a single man. Washington's crossing the Delaware River in Trenton, New Jersey, is one of them. When Washington wins here, the tide turns with him. The watchword Washington has chosen for the Trenton attack is victory or death. 2,400 American troops crossed the Delaware in the middle of a sleet storm on Christmas night, Captain. 1776. This weather will wet the men's powder. Our muskets won't fire. Then you must use your bayonet, Sergeant. Trenton must be taken. Yes, Many things go wrong, but the genius of Washington's attack lies in the date of its execution. In their barracks, the enemy has been celebrating Christmas with rum and ale. As night comes on, so does drunkenness, then sleep. At Trenton, Washington had to try something new. Conventional military tactics had failed him. He remembered the guerrilla tactics of the Indians from the French and Indian War. So he and his men snuck up on the sleeping Hessian soldiers. Washington slipping across the Delaware, taking advantage of Hessians who had had too much to drink, surprising them in the morning and winning a very small victory. It was not a great thing in military terms, but it was very important to the survival of the revolution. The legends of barefoot soldiers leaving bloody footprints in the snow are not fiction. The tales of starvation, disease, malnutrition, and exposure at Valley Forge in the winter of 1778 are not exaggerations. One soldier recorded seeing a dead body so covered with lice that it was thought the lice alone had killed the man. Even after makeshift cabins are built and the men are out of the freezing wind and snow, each sentry still has to borrow clothes from his bunkmate before his turn at guard. As the guard rotates, so does the clothing. But there is one thing not lacking in the American camps, rum. It is calculated that rebel troops are consuming a bottle a day per man. When enlistments expire, Washington goes before his troops and offers a bounty to all who step forward and re-enlist. The drums rolled. No one stepped forward. Washington couldn't believe it. He was dismayed. He was... He was shocked. He was desperate. So he marched up and down the line, begging, pleading, conjoling his men to stay, telling them that the future of America rested with them. The drums rolled again. This time, one man stepped out, two men stepped out. And at the end, everyone who could stayed on. 
He could lead. He could inspire his men. They admired him. He looked the picture of a general. He was a responsible, careful tactician. I don't suppose any military genius, but he had the genius to lead. And when we come back, our final segment, The Life of George Washington, America's First President and the Father of Our Nation. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our podcasts and to listen to all that we do. More after these messages. And now the final segment in our hour-long celebration of the life of George Washington, our nation's first president and the father of our country. Let's continue where we left off. Deeply feeling the plight of his men, Washington constantly hounds the Continental Congress for supplies, trying to shame them by appealing to their sense of patriotism. Congress's typical response is to give Washington permission to commandeer what he needs from those living near his stationed troops. Washington refuses this invitation to rob his fellow citizens at the point of a bayonet, arguing that to do so will alienate the very people in whose name the struggle has been undertaken. A struggle also exists with his generals. Washington has as much trouble with some of them as he does with the British. Men like Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, men who'd been officers in the British Army, thought Washington was a bumpkin, someone who didn't know anything about an army or how to run a war. And they caused George a tremendous amount of trouble. They conspired, they talked behind his back, they spoke to members of Congress, they tried to discredit him, but in the end, he met them with patience and persistence, and their own incompetence ruined him. And George survived, and they didn't. Throughout his career, he appears touched by God. On horseback, he leads charges into the thick of battle, willfully exposing himself to cannon and musket fire, strolling through a hail of shot. Yet not once does a bullet or shrapnel ever even graze him. In April 1781, a British warship sails up the Potomac and trains her guns on Washington's cherished home, Mount Vernon. Most of Washington's Virginia now lay under British control. The governor of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, begs Washington to come home and save his state. Washington declines. When Jefferson called upon Washington to defend his home and his state, he was talking to a Washington who no longer existed. Washington's allegiance was no longer to the country he had grown up in, English Virginia but was an allegiance to the future. Washington's record on the battlefield is three wins, nine losses, and one tie, which is no source of pride. If we succeed, we have a chance to end the war here. But the best battle to win is the last one. Surprise and terror will be your main weapons. And Washington endures long enough to win it, the three-week siege at Yorktown. May Providence be with you. 
This is where the Revolutionary War ends on October 19, 1781. When British General Cornwallis asks for the terms, Washington replies that the same honor should be granted to Cornwallis's surrendering army as was granted to the American garrison of Charleston. The point is not lost on Cornwallis. When Charleston fell to the British in 1780, the British refused to grant the Americans the honors of war, treating them as rebels and not as a legitimate army. Washington now demands the same humiliation of Cornwallis. But Cornwallis claims illness and sends a stand-in to Sir. the surrender ceremony. Earl Cornwallis is indisposed. I am second in command. In an attempt at insult, the British stand-in tries to hand over Cornwallis's sword to a French officer who had fought with the Americans. But the Frenchman refuses, directing him instead to Washington. Washington also refuses. He orders the Englishman to surrender Cornwallis's sword to General Lincoln. General Lincoln will accept the surrender. Who was the humiliated American commander at Charleston. Serve my sword. During his campaign against the British, Washington is always outnumbered, typically outgunned, and always short on supplies, weapons, wagons, horses, and boats. Yet he repeatedly slips the British noose, choosing strategic retreat over honorable defeat. He doggedly wears his enemy down. The British lose the war, not so much because the Americans under Washington defeat them on the battlefield, but because General George Washington does not give up or go away. But Washington's most important performance has yet to occur. Let me set the scene. It's the end of the war. Uh, Washington's generals and his high staff officers are disgruntled. They haven't been paid. They don't trust the Congress. They're not so sure that it's such a good idea to give over control of this new nation to this bunch of squabbling uh, politicians. Many among them wanted Washington to assume greater power, in fact, maybe dictatorial power. His officers plan a meeting at their headquarters on the night of March 15, 1783. They know how you feel, sir. So they do not want you there at the secret meeting. They will debate a move against Congress to demand their back pay, at gunpoint, if necessary. Washington knows he has to confront them. He begins writing a speech. He agonizes over every sentence and every word. He was ripped apart inside. He had suffered with these men. He'd watched them die. He'd watched them be wounded for their country. He knew what they had given up. He knew how Congress had mistreated them. And a part of him was attracted by their offer to be a kind of king. And he knew for certain that if he gave in to their offer, if he gave in to the allure of power, not only would he betray his country, but he would also betray the reputation and the honor that had been so hard for him to attain. He rides alone to the meeting. As he enters the building, the angry officers are stunned. But he sees no smiles, and there is no applause as he stands before them and begs them not to open the floodgates of civil war, which would surely drown the new nation in blood. If you will not lead us, sir, stand aside! I'll not stand aside. And if you try to silence me, you are asking for a nation in which freedom of speech is taken away. He knows he is failing, 
so he decides to read a copy of a letter from Congress, once again promising payment. It might work where his eloquence has not. He holds the letter in front of him and begins to read. I have a letter from a member of Congress. But something is wrong. And they are trying the officers draw closer. Then, Washington takes out a pair of glasses and puts them on. No one in the audience has ever seen him in his glasses before. The officers are shocked. Washington looks out at the men and speaks. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have... not only grown gray, but almost blind in service of my country. With this, he brings them to tears. He steps down from the stage and moves slowly towards the door. The conspiracy collapses. All that is left are the formalities of history. He knew that his glasses would be a symbol of his own weakness and vulnerability. And he hoped, he hoped that this would persuade his men that by betraying their country in this manner, they were also betraying him personally. It's high political acting, but what he did was he staged that performance in order to rescue control of the new government from a disgruntled military and to return it to civilian power where it belongs. And in that moment, we have fused the extraordinary political performance of George Washington, the ambitious would-be leader, and the principles about politics and about civilian rule, which restrained him even in the moment of his highest acting. Nine months later, Washington surrenders his commission and his army to Congress. The grand irony of his life, which in the beginning was based on acquisition, is that he did not secure the reputation he sought until he gave something up, power. President Abraham Lincoln once said, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. The path of George Washington's life is one from frontier to capital. It is one of our greatest American stories. And of all those who helped create the new nation, none are more deserving of the title, Founding Father. And there you have it, an hour on the life of George Washington. And if you can, folks, go to ouramericannetwork.org, get the link, send it to your friends. When they're driving around, they can hear this story. They need to hear and know this story. My goodness, they're not teaching it in high schools in America. They're certainly not teaching it in colleges. Well, there's one college that is, and that's Hillsdale College. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks there who teach the things that matter in life, the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their free and terrific online courses. I wanted to leave, though, with one of my favorite books and a couple of quotes. And read this when you can. Get it on audio. It's great. David McCullough's 1776. In part one, the opening chapter starts with a quote from General George Washington. The date, January 14, 1776. And he had these words to say. The reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. McCullough closes with these words about Washington. 
He was not a brilliant strategist or tactician, not a gifted orator, not an intellectual. At several crucial moments, he had shown marked indecisiveness. He had made serious mistakes in judgment, but experience had been his great teacher from boyhood, and in this his greatest test, he learned steadily from experience. Above all, Washington never forgot what was at stake, and he never gave up. And that's the thing about Washington, that perseverance. Without George Washington's leadership and unrelenting perseverance, the revolution almost certainly would have failed. As Nathaniel Greene foresaw as the war went on, quote, George Washington will be the deliverer of his own country. This is Lee Habib, George Washington's story, America's founding story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show. And that's love stories, death stories, war stories, stories about our history and our nation's history, stories about sports, the arts, you name it. And we talk about law enforcement a lot, and our nation's military, the men and women who serve this country, and mostly, almost uniformly, with honor and with dignity. And today we're joined by a local. His book is Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the toll of a double life, and Charlie Spillers joins us now. Charlie, thanks for joining us. Lee, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about what we always do when we start this show. Let's talk about beginnings. You were born in Louisiana, and by the way, my wife and I got married in New Orleans, so we love this part of the country. Of all the cities in the country to get married, this Jersey boy found himself in the heart of Cajun country, the capital of Cajun country. My wife was born and raised in Biloxi. And so the home city of Biloxi is New Orleans, as you know. Talk about how that rich Cajun history formulated and formed and helped inform your life. Yeah, I briefly wrote about that in the book, uh, about the fact that my uh, great-grandparents, who lived near New Iberia, Louisiana, couldn't understand or speak English, only Cajun French. So my parents would have to interpret. And whenever I'd stay in summers with my grandparents, the neighborhood ladies would come over and join my grandmother for coffee on hot summer days and gossip. And sometimes uh, villagers would drop by and talk to my grandfather, who was a renowned hunter and trapper. And they would lapse into French at times. And I would watch. I couldn't understand it, but I became fascinated by their body language and movements. And I realized that later on, when I was working undercover, I was had learned an early lesson about how people are reacting to things by watching the body language. So that was a key part of helping me survive and succeed in later years, besides the fact it's a rich, rich culture. You bet. And by the way, what people say and how people think and feel, the dissonance is usually only understood by sight. Right. And so it's, that's an important lesson you learned. By the way, I want to quote one thing from the book. You said, in addition to Cajun, French, and Cajun hospitality, their home was filled, and of course you're talking about your grandparents, their home was filled with the delicious aromas and tastes of Cajun cooking. Game stews made with thick brown roux, steaming chicken and sausage gumbos, spicy jambalaya, crawfish etouffee, and crawfish bisque, and I'm getting hungry already, Charlie. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your dad. He was a tool pusher in the oil fields. But his work helped shape your life because, well, tool guys, oil guys, oil field guys move a lot. And so you moved a lot. I want to quote you from your book again, and then 
hear your response. I was always the new student, the outsider, the stranger walking hesitantly into a classroom filled with kids who'd grown up together. How did this help you become the person you are today? Well, you can imagine years later when I'm trying to find some way to infiltrate criminal groups. I'm walking into people that I don't know, complete strangers. There's that same sense of dread and and being anxious about it, only more so undercover. But exposed to those experiences early on, about once every three years, moving towns, new schools and all that, it helped me learn to adapt to new situations, to find ways to become friends with people. And so that was a broadening experience, a very broadening experience for me. Yeah, stepping into new situations, you either had to learn to adapt or there was going to be a lot of suffering, I would assume, Charlie. Let's talk about the next important uh, chapter and phase in your life, and that's the U.S. Marine Corps. Talk about those weeks in Paris Island, because in order to make the Corps, you got to make it through the cut and the tough circumstances at Paris Island. How did that help shape your, your life? Paris Island was hard. It was a hard 13 weeks, and it changed my life. I became part of something that was bigger than me, and uh, that's where I learned that no matter how difficult something might seem or how impossible, you can do it. You can achieve things you think are impossible, and that has carried me through all my careers as in law enforcement as a federal prosecutor, later on as uh, the uh, Department of Justice at that shape of rock. All these difficult things, they don't phase me anymore. I know they might be difficult and hard, but I know some way I can do it. For instance, in the Marines, if somebody says, take that hill, you don't say, well, I don't have enough men. I don't have enough equipment. We're tired. We're worn out. Whatever it takes, you take that heel, and that's carried me through. And I'm sure other Marines do. Yeah, no doubt. And some of our heroes on this show, we did an hour on Fred Smith, who, of course, built up FedEx. And he said, look, everything I needed to know, I didn't learn in business school. I didn't learn in college. I learned it in the U.S. Marine Corps. And you know when Fred's saying that, right? that he means it. It's not just a a platitude. Let's talk about Vietnam. You were there. I think what people always wonder is, most Americans have experienced Vietnam through two or three movies. Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, uh, so on and so forth. Right. Uh, talk about your experience in Vietnam, what you saw, and what that was like. Well, I was there in 66, and uh, we were engaged in, I was a Marine squad leader. We were engaged in what I would call, describe light combat. Of course, if you're killed or grievously wounded, any combat is terrible. But we were involved in firefights with V.C., ambushes, and things like that. One thing that I don't think people understand about combat, at least, for instance, in Vietnam, is how it wears you down. Sleeping in two-hour segments and then on watch two hours from your foxhole. Sleeping two hours, then on watch. And then all day, you're up, you're patrolling, and that next night you might be out on ambushes, you're eating sea rations, you're not getting as much food, you're losing weight, you're tired all the time, you're worn down, and when you're out in the bush, you're carrying all this equipment, you're loaded down with it, you're exhausted, you're dirty all the time. It takes stamina, it takes endurance, and it takes that will not to just sit down and say, I quit. You've got to keep going. And then, of course, you have 
uh, sometimes boredom, and then all of a sudden, uh, a terrifying moment, the uh, ambush erupts, gunfire just cracks by your head, and it's after that that the adrenaline dump goes away, and after that, when you start feeling like, oh my God, you know, that was, oh, that was close, or, or you start feeling things, but you're so busy in combat, you don't have time to feel that. And hold that thought, Charlie. We'll be right back to talk about life after Vietnam and after the Marine Corps. We're talking to Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're joined today by Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And we were just talking about Charlie's upbringing in Cajun country, joining the Marine Corps, and experiencing firsthand the stresses and boredom of combat duty in Vietnam. And Charlie, you came home from Vietnam, and you meet a girl. And thank goodness, I mean, what would happen to us if we didn't? We'd be living under a bridge and drinking, most men. And then you tried to live an ordinary life after meeting your bride. You tried to live a domesticated life and settled down and joined the phone company, of all things. How did that work out for you? Uh, and that was fine. It was Southern Bell Telephone Company in North Carolina. And uh, I was a technician, and it was a very, very good job. But after about a year, I got to missing the excitement that I'd found in the Marines. And also, I was also pulled by a sense of duty. So I, I applied for a job in law enforcement. I took a job as a uniform uh, police officer, making less pay than I was making with the phone company. And my work day went from a regular five-day work week to a six-day work week. That's without overtime. Simply because I wanted to, you know, experience that adventure and excitement and also sense of duty of doing something meaningful so uh and by the way your wife had to be thrilled with this decision <laughs> because that's what all wives want they want you to be away more and make less lee the people who have read the book so many of them had said your wife is the real hero and for those who have read the book you see what she went through you see some encounters she had that were uh, terrifying she really was and is the hero of Yep. And let's talk about Baton Rouge, because this is where you cut your teeth in law enforcement. And it doesn't take long for you to get a certain specific role and job inside the Baton Rouge Police Department, and that is intelligence. So this right. begins your life into this space called undercover. Right, exactly. I was in uniform patrol for two months, and uh, the captain who was uh, in charge of the intelligence division asked to come see me at my apartment, at our apartment. And he came over, we had coffee, and uh, he told me he was head of the intelligence unit. He asked me if I would volunteer to go undercover. I had no idea what that meant, but it sounded exciting. So I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, don't report back to your ship and stay away from police headquarters. That started my 10-year undercover career, you know, six years with the Baton Rouge 
PD and uh, my first five years with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics later on. So during that first six or eight months, I was immersed as an undercover officer in intelligence. And my job was to infiltrate the burglary rings, safe cracker rings, just the criminal groups. And therefore, my office became the local bars. There were two or three local bars where some of those groups hung out, and that was basically their headquarters. And so my nights would be spent there, and we would all gather at a you know, particular table or tables pulled together, and normally the bar owner you know, knew everybody, and the dancers, bar girls would come over and sit during their break. It was all a social group, but it was also a criminal group. And so um, usually... Uh, I'd get home maybe three or four o'clock in the morning, or I'd get home a day or two later after I went out. And that was the thing that was uh, hard, especially hard on my wife. When I left to go out, she never knew if I'd be back in two hours writing some reports, or if I'd be back uh, late that night or early in the morning, or two days later. She never knew. You could never plan anything. I never knew. Yep. And I would assume that, and you indicate this in the book, you know, if you're a member of the police department, you get to do the cookouts with the police department. You get to hang out in the, in the streets with the police department, do the community building, the community relations. You're wearing the uniform. Folks get to know you. And here you get none of these, what I call social benefits of being in the police department. You're a lone wolf in a, in a sense. You've got a, maybe a couple of other guys you work with. You report some of the cops might even, not even know that you're undercover. Talk about what that strain was like on your wife and obviously on you, but I think more, look, you picked the profession. So in some respects, you are hardwired for stress. You're hardwired for this. But, you know, the average wife is not hardwired for this any more than the average military wife whose husband goes off for three years or a year to Iraq or to, or to Germany in World War II or to, North, or to Korea. Um, talk about your wife, because it, it did really interest me in the book, the, that her role in this. Yeah, uh, we couldn't let our neighbors know I was a police officer. Even though they were good, fine people and they were trustworthy, you, an undercover agent gets burned down normally through someone trusted, telling a trusted friend, who tells a trusted friend and a trusted friend, next thing you know, it's out on the street that, hey, there's an undercover agent that's working and uh, uh, with penetrated such and such a group. Or if you're in a small town and you're the stranger in town and it gets out, there's an undercover agent in the area, all fingers point at you. So that's your biggest threat, one of your biggest threats of compromise. So she couldn't tell neighbors. And sometimes we'd have a cover story about how we – you know, I made my money at the time. She was working, I believe, as a secretary about how I made my money. And we couldn't go out together. I mean, we might go out to the grocery store together every now and then, perhaps to a movie every now and then, but we had to be very careful. And I describe in the book how a couple times when we went out, we encountered criminals I was working on. And I couldn't let them see my wife and I together because she looked straight. And it would be out of character for me to be with you. Know, what are you doing with her? Yeah. I remember in one particular instance in the book, you sort of just drift away from your wife. She sort of gets it. And she walks away and goes to the movie theater. And you walk in another direction. And then you get back together hours later. Yeah, exactly. I, when I saw them and we were walking across the street to the entrance to the theater, all of a sudden... I whispered, 
keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And then I veered off to the bad guys, and she just kept, I mean. She knew just what to do. She knew what to do, but she didn't know it through training. She knew it through instinct, instinct. and fear, Yeah, which she handled well. And if she sees you afraid or, is, or you sensing fear, she knows that there's something up right. and just move. Right, like when the, uh, when the uh, drug dealer came to our house and saw her out back. And he pointed to a, we were living in a mobile home. He pointed to it, that home, and he said, hey, does Mike live there? And I was using the name Mike. Right. And she immediately knew what that was. And she was out back with our little two- or three-year-old son, you know, at the little playground. And she said, oh, I don't know who lives there. And so she got Terry, our son, and she went off in a different direction. She went around out of sight. Then she came back and looked. She didn't see him. Here's what she was thinking. I had gone off to go to the convenience store. She was thinking, Charlie would be back. I need to go warn him that this man's, I need to warn him. So even though she knew the danger was there, she rushed back to the, to the trailer, and I was head back inside. And she came inside, and she said, Charlie, Charlie. And she closed the door, and she was looking out the curtain. Charlie, Charlie, somebody's out there was asking for Mike. And I said, what? She said, yeah. And she told me, and I jumped up and grabbed my gun, and I went to the windows and started looking around all over, holding my gun. But at the same time, not only to you know defend and protect us, but at the same time thinking I've got to keep calm for her, too. So I'm looking all over, and Finally, I go out, go out, and I say, lock the door behind me. Don't let anybody in but me. And I go out, and I walk around. Then I, I go back and say, I'll be back in a moment. I get in my car, and I, I go all over for 15, 20 minutes. I even park and watch cars because it's a threat. It's a threat, but I don't see anything. So finally, satisfied that, well, we're okay, I go back to the house, the trailer, and I go inside and say, look, everything's okay. Uh, I think we're all right. I go back to writing reports at the table and uh, of a recent buy, a drug buy or something. And she says, well, after a little while, I'm going to the store. So she leaves. And Terry, our son's in the bed sleeping, and there's a knock on the door after she left. And I go to the door, and I open the door, and I look down. It's the drug dealer, Ural. And he looks up at me, and he says, hey, Mike. What are you thinking then? Yep. Why all of a sudden is your heart and your mind doing then? Bam, bam, bam. So there were situations like that. And uh, she went through that, and it was terrifying for her. But she handled it well. And yes, she did. We're talking with Charlie Spillers, a man who has served the public in so many ways as a U.S. Marine in Vietnam, as an undercover cop for 10 years, and then later as a career federal prosecutor, and last as a Justice Department attache in Iraq when things were really hot. Charlie's book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. It's a must-read. And more with Charlie and his stories, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our conversation with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and The Toll of a Double Life. And now let's get straight to one of the best stories in the book, and it's about a woman and a woman very close to you. Talk about her. That's my undercover partner with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, Sarah Neal. She and I worked together undercover in Jackson, pretending to be a Mississippi, pretending to be a couple to infiltrate heroin trafficking rings. When we were finished, I went down to the Gulf Coast and started driving a taxi cab as a cover to infiltrate the rings down that way. She went to South Mississippi. While she was in South Mississippi, an agent in North Mississippi asked Sarah to come and join him to do a heroin buy bust of four ounces of heroin. So Sarah drove up to Columbus, Mississippi, met the agent, and the drug dealer had told, the heroin dealer had told the agent, look, drive outside of Columbus on this narrow two-lane road, drive about 12 or 15 miles until you see my car parked on the shoulder of the road. And when you see my car, you park on the other shoulder of the road, and we'll do the deal in the middle of the road. And don't worry, don't worry. There are no houses around. Hardly anyone uses the road, and it's level there for a mile or two in both directions. If anybody, other cars on the road, we'll see them uh, in plenty of time. You know, So it's like being on the moon, it's remote and isolated. So that day, Sarah and her partner, Jerry Dedman, drove out in the undercover car. And all agents on surveillance had to stay back out of sight because of the road, so Sarah and Jerry were really on their own, and it was sleeting some that day. It was miserable, almost around time for Thanksgiving, and as they drove out that road, they saw the heroin dealer's car. They parked on the other side of the road. While Sarah waited in the undercover car, the agent, Jerry, got out, and he met the heroin dealer in the middle of the road. He pulled out a $10,000 flash roll, and the heroin dealer produced the four ounces, and when he did, the agent, Jerry, pulled out his gun and yelled, police, you're under arrest, you're under arrest, hands up. And when he did, on the heroin dealer's side of the road, across the field, 75 yards away, was the heroin dealer's brother with a 30-30 rifle. And he had the undercover agent, Jerry Dittman, in his sights. And he had his finger on the trigger. And when Jerry yelled, police, the man pulled the trigger, bam, bam. And Jerry got hit. And he staggered in the road. Bam! The man kept shooting. Detman, Jerry Detman, staggering in the road. He couldn't see where the man was shooting from, but he could tell it was from a tree line. And Jerry started blindly just emptying his pistol toward the tree line. Pow, pow, pow. Meanwhile, the man shooting back. Bam, bam. Sarah Neal, the undercover agent, is in the undercover car on the other side of the road. She's in relative safety. She could stay there, scrunch down, or get down, crouch behind the car. But instead, she saw her fellow agent staggering in the road. Bam! He got hit a second time. Sarah jumped out of the car without hesitating, ran around the front of the car with just her little Model 65 shot 38 toward her partner. She ran into the danger zone, the killing zone, and as she did, the heroin dealer in the road went for his gun, and Sarah popped off a shot. Pow! It hit the man in the hand. Sarah got to Jerry Dedman, the agent, and as she did, bam, Jerry got shot a third time. The rifleman was shooting at both of them. Pow, pow. Sarah grabbed Jerry, pulled him to her side of the road. They tumbled down an embankment. And when they got down there, 
Jerry rode over, flat on his back. Sarah scrambled up, watching the skyline with her gun for the bad guys. She looked over at Jerry, and she saw he was covered with blood. And she thought, he's going to die. I've got to get him to the hospital, or he's going to die. So without hesitating, she got down, she pulled him to his feet, and she started tugging him up the embankment, still holding her gun with one hand, and thinking the bad guys were up there. She got him to the top. The bad guys were gone. She got Jerry to the undercover car, and he was bleeding all over her. She put him down in the back seat, and he was bleeding over the back seat, and about that time, surveillance cars roared up and started fanning out for the bad guys. Sarah raced back to Columbus. She found the hospital. She took him into the emergency room, and the emergency rooms weren't equipped then like they were now. A nurse said, here, put him in this room right here, and they put him on a table. And the nurse said, let me go see if I can find a doctor anywhere in the hospital. And the nurse left. And Sarah was there along with Jerry bleeding. And as she was there after a couple minutes, she heard hollering at the entrance that she'd come in. Somebody was hollering, ah, ah, ah. Sarah stepped out of the room and she looked. And coming through the doors was a man holding his right hand. Help me, help me, help me, my hand, it hurts, help me. Yes, yes. It was the gunman she had shot in the road. The heroin dealer she had shot in the road. Help me. Sarah stepped back in the room, reached in her purse and got her gun and handcuffs, and she went out and arrested him. Yes, she arrested him. She put him on the floor of the emergency waiting room on his stomach. She knelt down and started handcuffing him behind his back. And as she did, he yelled, Don't put him on too tight. It hurts too bad. Don't put him on too tight. So she made sure she put him on. A tad too tight. Ah! The only one around was an elderly gentleman sitting there watching all this with big eyes like he was watching a movie. And Sarah bent over the man she had arrested, looked at him, said, Mister, Mister, would you watch him? Would you watch him? I need to get back to my partner. And if he moves just an inch, would you yell out? Would you do that? Yes, ma'am. So she went back with her partner. They found a doctor. Other agents flooded in from around the state. And this happened about noontime, about midnight. Agents finally convinced Sarah to go get some rest because she had driven up that day, four-hour drive, been through this. Go, go find a motel room, get some rest. So she drove into downtown Columbus. It was sleeting. The lights were off. No cars were out. It looked like an abandoned town late at night. She found the Holiday Inn. There were only a few people there, and they put her in a back building, she double-locked the doors because the rifleman, the shooter, was still uh, loose. And she took a shower. And when she did, she took her gun to the shower with her and had it in there. Finally, she got in bed, maybe about 2 in the morning. Well, if that happened to you, would you go off right to a contented sleep? Well, she didn't either. She tossed and she turned. And finally, maybe a half an hour before daylight, she finally fell into an exhausted sleep, and at daylight, the phone next to the bed rang and woke her up. It was an agent at the hospital. She called in, left word where she was, and the agent said, Sarah, I've been, been here awake all night. Can you come relieve me? And Sarah Neal got up after a half hour sleep, and she got dressed. But the only clothes she had were those she had worn the day before because she thought she was going to be back in South Mississippi that night. So she put on jeans that were, had blood all over them, 
a blouse with blood all over it and a jacket with blood all over it. And she drove back to the hospital. Sarah Neal stayed at the hospital all day, oftentimes fighting to stay awake. That night, around 8 o'clock or so, she finally left, driving back to Columbia, to uh, South Mississippi. It was uh, 210 miles, a four-hour drive on the back roads. And the whole way, the whole way, she fought to stay awake at the wheel, still wearing those bloody clothes. You know what she did the next morning? Next morning, she got up and went back to work as an MBN agent. She later received an award from Parade Magazine, which used to be the, the popular supplement Sunday papers, an award as one of the 10 outstanding federal, state, and, law and, and local law enforcement agents in the nation. They flew her out to an award ceremony in uh, Los Angeles. But I love that story. I love that story because many people didn't know about it at the time, and they certainly didn't know about the details. And I love that story because, to me, that story is about the people we have in law enforcement today, the men and women in federal, state, and law enforcement today, that courage, that dedication that's exemplified by Sarah Neal and Jerry Debman. That's the kind of folks we have serving us today. And when we come back, more from Charlie Spillers, his terrific book, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with Charlie Spillers, author of Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And, you know, Charlie, a lot of people know about the Italian mafia and the big city mafias of New York and Boston and, and Chicago, and we've seen countless movies about that kind of mafia. But you infiltrated a very different kind of mafia, the Dixie Mafia, which is a whole different animal. There's no city to hide in. There's lots of open land. People know each other. And everybody in these rural areas is tight-knit. But that's exactly why the Dixie Mafia was so successful. Right. And, of course, over several states, a, uh, it's a loose network that of criminals, career criminals, engaged in everything from auto theft to uh, armed robberies to, uh, and by armed robberies, normally they would pick out targets, like somebody living in a rural area or on the edge of a town who who reportedly has a lot of money in their safe or in their home and they'll put on ski masks and do a home invasion. And what the, what they might do is something like this. Let's say there's a couple uh, Dixie Mafia people who live around Calhoun City and they're well known. And that's Mississippi. Right. Calhoun City, Mississippi, south of Oxford, very rural. Uh, they're well known. But they happen to be talking with people in town and somebody just mentions somebody who's spent a lot of money and all of a sudden... They'll target that person. And what they'll do is maybe they'll call Dixie Mafia members in Oklahoma who will come down and do the actual hit, the actual home, in the robbery, and then they'll split up the money. Or somebody in Oklahoma or northeast Mississippi or somewhere else will see some kind of uh, scam target and then call others come do it, and they split split up. So they come together in these little tight-knit conspiracies to, to do things. Uh, and 
that most of the time they're facing rural understaffed law enforcement agencies and they're operating over a multi-state area. So they're hard to target. They're hard to work on. And they're also very dangerous. So in Northeast Mississippi was the auto theft capital of the U.S. It had a reputation nationwide among law enforcement agencies as being the area that had a lot of chop shops where they chop up stolen cars and stolen car rings, and they were Dixie Mafia-connected people. And so when our agency, I was with the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, they came up with $10,000 of special funds that could be used for buying stolen cars. Uh, I volunteered. I was excited when I heard that. I volunteered to go up to northeast Mississippi to see if I could infiltrate them. And I had no idea how I would do it when I volunteered. But after I went up, I met two sisters, two big old girls that were real rough, who were cooperating. And they were on the edges of these groups. And they were cooperating. And they said, yeah, they would introduce me and vouch for me. Uh, But it's hard to break in. I need more than that. So I told the two girls, I said, well, look. Here's what I want you to do for two weeks before I ever show up. I want you to just talk to people about me. Every now and then mention Mike. Oh, our man Mike down in Alabama, he's going to be coming up. Boy, he's so bad, he'll cut off your head and crap on your neck. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Don't tell him something that bad when I heard about it. Oh, my God. But anyway, they, so they spread the story. They spread the story that I was, uh, I was a real criminal. I was big in uh, auto theft, and I was at a higher level because I thought, what I needed to do, I couldn't come in as an auto thief because, you know, they would know too quickly and they all know each other. I needed to come in at a higher level than the rest of them, like I'm a some kind of boss in an organization. So I, as I came in, I came in as, like I said, a boss of a multi-state organization that helped dispose of stolen cars. And I still needed to break in, though. So I had the girls introduce me to the owner of a pawn shop who I knew was connected with these people. And uh, I showed up and said, hey, man, I'm Mike. Yeah, they told me you're okay. I can talk with you. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. They told me you're okay, too. I said, hey, uh, uh, I want to see if you might be interested in some TVs. My people took off a truckload of televisions. Don't, oh, don't worry, don't worry. There's no heat around here. It was in another state. Uh, we've already gotten rid of it. But there's a couple TVs left over. I just want to get rid of them. Would you be interested? He looked at me real carefully, kind of scrutinized me, and then he said, well, what kind? How much? So then I knew it was okay. So we struck a deal. I quoted a price where they had to have been stolen. And so we arranged for me to deliver to him the next day after his business closed. So the next morning I went to another town to Walmart, and I bought two brand-new TVs. And I left them in the box but stripped all the markings off so they couldn't be traced, you know, by the box. And then delivered those to him as uh, coming off the stolen shipment. He vouched for me and a week later introduced me to two guys involved in auto thefts and burglaries. And I wind up dealing with them. In fact, one of them later showed me about 37 rifles they had stolen from a collector, real quality rifles that they were wanting to unload. And they took me out in the country and showed them to me and... We took one of them up in AR-18, I think it was, and fired it several times and all that. But uh, later on, one night I was riding with the two criminals, and one of them said, hey, look, uh, my such-and-such, it was a relative of his, lives on that 
that hill up there in that house, uh, he's supposed to have about 100000 in his safe. Of course, he can't hide. He's hiding that from the government. Now, what we want to do is we want to rob it and get it, but even with ski masks, he didn't know it was us. So how about you doing it? But you see, that's the that's yep. the way those folks are. Yep. But anyway, so I got got involved with uh, infiltrating the uh, auto theft rings and uh, buying stolen vehicles from uh, car vets to um, tractor trailer trucks. In fact, tractor trailer truck just completely full of boxes of furniture from one of the furniture plants. Um, a brand new BMW just stolen off the new car lot in Chicago twelve hours before and driven down. Nice deal for $2,200. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I got some real real bargains, but uh, that was exciting. Don't yeah. buy a used car for this man. <laughs> yeah, don't buy a used car. For Whatever me. you do. Yeah, no warranty. And now, Charlie, let's talk a little bit about your life after a decade of working undercover. Your career really is remarkable. Because, Charlie, you ran every, every avenue of law enforcement. It's very rare to go from a, a cop to then Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. You were in quickly... You spent your time in undercover work, which is, I think, the most stressful and some of the most important work that can happen. And then you go over to the prosecutor's side, but not just any prosecutor. I mean, you end up in a U.S. attorney's office. So talk about that segue from being the guy on the street to the guy in the suit. And I've often in my life, I have a law degree, noticed sometimes there's a, a, a tension between the suits, the prosecutors, and the cops. Sometimes they like the suits, sometimes they don't like the suits. More often than not, I've seen very good relationships, but it's a very different mindset. And sometimes the cops aren't too happy that the prosecutors are giving them a hard time, but they want more evidence. They just need more evidence to make a case. And they're saying, nope, can't take it to, can't take it to trial. And I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer. Can't take it to trial. Need more evidence. And the cops are going, damn it, got to go back. And so that's what I mean by the tension. Right. Talk about being on that other side. Now, you're the prosecutor, and the FBI is coming to you. You're at the U.S. attorney, and you're saying, we need more. We need more. Right, right. And, and I love doing that. Uh, my job was I was an OCDEF prosecutor, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force, prosecutor uh, targeting major uh, drug trafficking organizations and trying to take down, disrupt them and take down their hierarchy. And those investigations might last anywhere from six months to three years. And usually it's multiple uh, federal, state, and, and local investigators, FBI, DEA, Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics, uh, some PD, SO officers. And I enjoyed and loved those investigations because here was a target, career criminal, oftentimes violent, that needed to be taken down. How do we do it? And we're working toward it. I think uh, the agents I worked with came to appreciate uh, my experience as in law enforcement and expertise in figuring out ways to make cases against those folks. And it's like one of the task force agents told me later, he said, man, I used to fuss and cuss. You would have us doing so much. I'd fuss and cuss, but I learned a lot and I learned how it should be done. And I learned that we keep on going until we can cut off those defense avenues of escape so that when we have the case and we go to court, it's what people think. Yeah, it's a federal case, meaning, no, they're not going to be able to get out of it because you thought of how they're going to attack the evidence. You thought of the reasons they're going to try to use to confuse the jury. We keep going till we've got enough to get a conviction. And it's like a FBI agent and a state agent said when we were starting out a case, the FBI agent came over to start working with us on one of those cases. And the state agent said, um, 
well, you, you better get ready because for the next three years, you're not going to get much sleep. And that's about the way we, we worked. We used to tell folks we'd work from can to cane, can to cane. And there you have it, our interview with Charlie Spillers, Confessions of an Undercover Agent, Adventures, Close Calls, and the Toll of a Double Life. And you can catch this on OurAmericanNetwork.org if you want to share it with friends, with family members. All of our work is up there, and we've done any number of stories on law enforcement, on soldiers, and the life of the men and women who wear uniforms uh, serving our country. Charlie Spiller's story, what a terrific one. From undercover agent all the way to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We didn't even get to his time in Iraq when the whole place was blowing up. And he was an attache there. The guy just loved going into dangerous places. And he loved strapping on that uniform and a sidearm and taking care of folks. Thanks, Charlie, for the time and for a life well served. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Charlie Spiller's story. Story.